You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today is March 30th, and I'm James Buran. Today we're going to be chatting with a multifamily office from Calgary and a Toronto-based private equity and real estate shop. This podcast includes insights on the future of Calgary, ETFs, and the effect of the unprecedented fiscal and monetary stimuli occurring in Canada and many other countries recently. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Hello, everybody. This is James with CASA, and uh, we have two excellent speakers on today, Corey Kaplan from North Haven Capital and Adam Hoffman from Vesta Wealth Partners. And we're going to be speaking about what's been happening in this current crisis with regard to the public and private markets. Uh, Adam, let's hear uh, your introduction, please, and we'll move on from there. Well, my name is Adam Hoffman, and I'm the president of Vesta Wealth Partners. Thanks for having me on, James. We're a new um, multifamily office in Calgary formed in June of last year. We are a outsourced chief investment officer to seven other client families, and we're a single family office to one family, the Fort Mueller family. Well, thank you. And Corey? Great. Well, thanks for having me on, James, and I'm excited to chat with you and Adam today about the uh, interesting world that we're living in. Um, I'm uh, on the investment team with North Haven Capital. Uh, North Haven Capital is a uh, alternative investment firm that's focused uh, in the real estate industry. We have two platforms um, that are core to our business. One of them is a real estate development operation that's focused on the GTA, building out uh, condominiums, rental properties, and townhomes. And secondly, we have another platform in the US called Fundamental Real Estate Partners that buys niche income properties, um, specifically daycare centers, uh, veterinary clinics, and dental clinics. Uh, prior to joining the investment team at North Haven, I worked for a firm called Bridgeport Asset Management, which is a boutique uh, investment management firm focused on public market investments as well as uh, alternative investments. Wow, that's a great uh, lineup you have there. So, I mean, some people have a shotgun, some have a rifle, but it seems you've got about five or six sniper rifles there, uh, all these different areas. Um, what's happening with uh, with fundamental real estate partners with your, uh, you said daycares, veterinarians, dental uh, how has that been uh, through the crisis? Is it more of a, a threat or an opportunity or what's been your view? Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, everybody's seen the, the, you know, the volatility out there in the public markets. There's certainly been a lot of activity and some large drawdowns across, you know, the, the traditional REITs and the mortgage REIT sectors. Um, however, with that said, given how low interest rates are and given how early it is, in this COVID crisis, we really haven't seen that flow through into the private real estate market yet. Um, we believe where we're, where we're positioned, um, given that we're in these mission critical lines of business, these call it, you know, Amazon proof, uh, you know, defensive areas such as, um, you know, businesses that are in the early education and the healthcare space. Uh, we believe that through this current crisis, we can play defense now and then offense later coming out of it. I think um, we feel confident given the underlying asset base, but also how we're funded. Um, our funding sources come from uh, committed capital that come from limited partners on the equity side. And then on the debt side, we feel pretty good right now because we have a, a committed uh, credit facility with a bank 
that they you know effectively follow us around all across the nation and as we uh, look to close deals they'll finance us um, with identical terms for each transaction that we do so it's still early to say but i think uh, the consensus is um, we're in for you know certainly several months of volatility and i believe that we're positioned in a pretty uh, in a pretty good way to to uh, ride through it and also take advantage of it well wow, thanks for that um and then adam so vesta obviously you guys have uh, very strong backers as well with the, the single family office and your your other business in the uh, outsourced cio um but how is alberta doing because it's uh, it seemed it hadn't had a lot of fun lately with the oil price being relatively low and then it just cratered, I think, one day, like 35% off with Saudi Arabia turning on the taps. Uh, what's, what's the, what's the uh, deal for Calgary right now? Calgary market is in trouble, James. Uh, it is a journey to a dollar for Western Canadian Select. Ooh. And the differential is really being punished. Even the lowest cost operators can't can't handle this. And if you look at the stock prices of the companies that really made Calgary what it was and the the incredible bull run that we were on, mm-hmm. they're all, most of them are trading off of 90% of their all-time highs. And wow. there's a lot of sorrow in the industry for, um, for what we had. And, but that has turned, I think, into a real strong re- resiliency into building either within the same industry or building within other industries and turning back the clock to the 1930s when we first found oil and gas. So I would say it's we're we're past uh remorse and we're we're now showing our resiliency as a province again. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I lived quite a few years in Vancouver and that Vancouver's always been a lumber town uh, more or less and also uh a lot of trade going through there and then when lumber and such goes down in mining, then uh they had a lot of tech occurring in in uh, Yale town and such and that's been a bit of a boon. Um is Calgary, do you think Calgary might go that way as well? Or what, what do you think its path is going to be like? It's an interesting opportunity Calgary's faced because we don't really have the Alberta advantage anymore in terms of t- uh, tax. So we have to find a new way to stand out. And when I think about all the talent around engineering, finance and banking, lawyers, and the you know incredible downtown structure we have in terms of uh, these big class A buildings, I think we will be able to find... We've got the shell. We've got the infrastructure in place to be able to find the next thing. People talk about, of course, technology and innovation. Where would uh, Calgary sit within that overall framework? Um, I personally think it's going to be towards energy solutions. I think that we just have so many minds that are tailored to dealing with energy. Our local Canadian companies, despite the rhetoric, are really proud of the uh, clean clean energy that they try and produce. And so I think we already have the right minds in place to, to focus on clean tech. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, what What are you hearing from your clients? Like, what are they, what are they doing? Are they finding opportunities and seizing upon them, or are they are they kind of seizing up and and waiting to see what what comes out of this? Our clients have done. It's a good question. Our clients have done a good job of diversifying. They're with us because they were scared of their exposure to the energy industry right. and the public markets in general. Uh, so they, you know, are happy and giving us the pats on the back and. The fact that we're up through this um, severe volatility is really a proud point for uh, our team. And 
I would say that their biggest issues right now are around illiquidity in their private investments within sort of mm. Western Canada. And of course, their real estate has, there's a lot of pressure, obviously, not just on the residential homes that they live in and second homes, but also on the commercial properties that they may have and tenants not being able to pay, of course, like everyone else is facing in this uh, severe time. Yeah. How about with uh, district, Corey? Um how have you been faring with your, you know, you say condos and creating such for the rental market, townhomes, uh, what's your geographic footprint in Canada? And, uh, and how has that been? I guess it's kind of early to tell, but I know there's been some change or some moves by the, uh, the bank of Canada and the, the Canadian charter banks to, uh, to help alleviate some of this crisis. Yeah. Well, district has been around for about five years. Uh, we focus on the GTA market. We have about 1.5 million square feet that we're building out between now and 2024. Uh, luckily and prudently, you know, given where most of our projects are in the current phase where, uh, you know, we've yet to put a shovel in the ground and a lot of the funding sources towards advancing the project has come from uh, equity capital or um, advances um, from various deposits that we've collected from selling units. And so at the current uh, time, our, our projects are, are, are quite under lever. So we're able to continue on. Um, you know, as, as, as normal as possible um, for, you know, a, a decent amount of runway. Well, that's good stuff. It's good to have some, some dry powder. Uh, on your U.S. investments, so I'm not quite sure I understand. You have veterinary clinics, dental clinics, uh, daycares, and you own the businesses or how do you, um, how do you manage that? And you, but cause, because you said it's a real estate play as well. How, how, uh, how do you get the exposure there? What, what are they? Yeah, I would love to dive into that further. So what we do at Fundamental is we partner with private equity firms that are looking to acquire the operating business. Um, we play on the real estate side. We don't look to get us, get involved in the operating business. That's someone else's investment strategy. And, uh, you know, in the U.S., um, you know, some sort of healthcare practitioner or owner of a daycare center you know, if they've done reasonably well over the years, they've been able to acquire their underlying property. And so we partner with lower middle market private equity firms that look to buy the business. But in the case that there's real estate involved, potentially in the transaction, uh, we work very intimately with the private equity firms to assess the, the viability of that real estate for our portfolio. And we get first look at that real estate asset. And if we don't like it, we can pass on it. But if we like it, then we draw down on our capital and we make that acquisition and put it into our fund. Wow. So it's like Ray Kroc's epiphany with McDonald's of owning the real estate underneath the restaurants, except you don't even, you don't even want the restaurants. You just take the real estate side there. And then uh, probably in alignment of interest because the PE investor is going to make sure that that, uh, that that clinic or whatever it might be is going to be uh, turning out revenues and and profits so that they can they can pay the rent. Um, but how like is there any insurance on on the rent that they're paying uh, paying you or or how are you uh, how are you uh, protected in these these sorts of times? Absolutely, and we think it's a great partnership because you know private equity firms in general and, and specifically lower middle market private equity firms do not want to be involved on the real estate side. You know, they don't want to have to overdraw on the equity capital within their fund to buy the real estate asset and then market it and find someone else to buy it a few months later. It really is just inefficient uh, given their setup. And so we partner alongside them. 
Uh, we close um, on their timelines uh, because we're, we're, we're effectively providing a captive real estate financing service. And so that um, adding that dynamic to their deal um, execution process is, is a, adds a huge layer of convenience for them uh, because their alternative is, uh, you know, maybe wanting to concurrently close on the real estate side with another partner, say a REIT or, or another private fund, you know, maybe a larger mm -hmm. private fund. And, you know, if, if they, if they're closing in a month and a half, they might go to that partner or, or that, that group that might want that has interest in the real estate and they'll say, great, we can close in a month and a half, you know, and we'll close at this price. Um, but as the weeks go by and as the days to the, um, as the days nearing closing shrink, uh, suddenly that private equity firm is realizing that either A, the timelines have stretched beyond their closing date, or B, the price has changed. And so we we interact with uh, with our private equity partners in a way that we're, we're going to close concurrently and whatever price and valuation we're guiding towards is going to be what it ends up being. Wow. And for the structure of the fund, are you, what, 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 what stage are you now? You did a, are you first close, final close done in the, uh, the investment side with your, uh, yeah, I think you said you're 12 months in with your, the U S fund. Yeah. Uh, and then how long does it last when you start harvesting? Is it perennial or evergreen? Uh, how, how does that, Sure. So it's a uh, it's a closed end private equity style fund. It uh, we're projecting about a five year life. We started uh, investing in April of last year. Actually, the the principals began funding the first few acquisitions uh, with their own capital on balance sheet, and we did our first equity closing in June of last year, and have uh, done uh, three three or four uh, subsequent closings since. And we've been averaging about one property per month in terms of acquisitions and. Uh, now we're about uh, we're at about eleven properties consisting of you know daycare, uh, vet, dental, and uh, they're spread out all across the country. Really, you know, we have assets in uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina. We have assets in Salt Lake City, Nashville, Chicago. It's all about um, who the underlying tenant is, uh, the the strength and the durability of that lease. And is that particular market or submarket growing? Is there activity? Is there development activity, economic activity? Are there people there that require the underlying services? And if the answer is yes, then we will uh, move towards doing a deal. And uh, Adam, where are you guys seeing opportunities? Well, we like to do most of our investing through asset managers. So the opportunities we see are the opportunities that our asset managers are telling us are out there in our updates and believe me there have been a lot of updates from our uh, investment asset managers uh, over the last two weeks private credit there's going to be a lot of distress uh, so there's going to be plenty of opportunity there we're really excited about a private equity fund that we built a canadian mutual fund trust feeder for so similar to 0607 we think that those private equity opportunities are going to get great uh, multiple prices in this uh, coming capital crunch and so there's going to be a lot of opportunity in private equity as well. Good stuff. And what do you think of the uh, the private markets? Is there is it time is it time to get in? <laughs> That's a crazy question, but is it the yeah. or is it or is it because we're kind of thinking at least for our business twelve to eighteen months before things get normal as people have to get vaccinated. But uh, what uh, what are you seeing? Because obviously the markets lead and they have their own kind of little way to wig and wag. Yeah, what we're seeing from these um, presentations from the various asset managers is a fair amount of bullishness, but a lot of uncertainty around timing. 
we've all seen the you know the prognosis from from Donald Trump is uh, weeks, not months, and I, I like you, James, think that we're looking at a pretty severe economic contraction here going on a year plus. We just don't know how the economy is going to react to this, but depending on the type of businesses that you're buying, they may be perfectly set. This There won't just be losers in this contraction. And so there will be plenty of opportunities. And, and we know that we're getting lots of capital calls from our asset managers uh, with very specific investment thesis in place to to try and act uh, opportunistically. So it's an interesting time to be sure, but to to not know where the economy will be in 12 to 18 months is certainly something that I, I have never thought about before. This is a very unique contraction. Yeah, and how about for your um, for your investors that have offshore investments, uh, currencies and such, I guess the, the US dollar has been getting stronger and stronger just because, you know, I guess people figure their, their rates are going to go further. We have three and six month bills, negative rate territory, I think still. Um, are you hedging any of that? Or is it more like a natural hedge it use with your clients? Or is it just uh, uh, nothing at all? The hardest part about managing our private asset managers um, exposure, currency exposure, is that it seems so many of the asset managers are pegged to the US dollar. And so we try and maintain around a, an MSCI style weighting to various currencies, which it, at this time, I believe, is just over 60% to uh, the US dollar. And mm-hmm. we, we haven't had to take uh, hedges out to currency hedges out to um, pr- protect our clients from too much US dollar exposure. But I could certainly see that happening with how strong the dollar looks today and where it's going. Yeah, I never quite know. And and so actually, the term OCIO or outsourced chief investment officer, how is that different from a multifamily office? Which uh, which I, I uh, people may or may not be familiar with both of those terms. So maybe you could explain the difference there. Yes, and we were speaking offline about how difficult it is to define multifamily office. In general, I know in the U.S. market, they they basically use the term multifamily office to describe a a strong wealth management team in general. So it's uh, so how do we define it is a good question, and I could at least can answer that. Perfect. A multifamily office is really family office services to more than one family, and we are now a single family office. So in terms of the family office services we provide to that one family, we look at it as like a uh, chief financial officer. So anything risk related, we like to have a say in, and that includes human capital and relationship risks. So we are quite intentional with uh, our family about family meetings and what is all this money good for and, and how, if we're not intentional about it, how we can, you know, destroy what really matters, which is the people and their relationships. But in terms of the OCIO sleeve, so those clients still have risks we need to make sure that all, their, all of their risks are covered. And we like to call wealth management services that we provide to those OCIO clients quarterbacking because although we're no longer the accountant or the tax planner or uh, the bookkeeper or the property manager, we know that they're going to need those services. And so we make sure that their ecosystem is robust. Uh, so sure, they're an OCIO client. They're no longer a multifamily office client. Uh, the, the devil's in the details, but I would say it's who's providing the service and we try and outsource as many of those services for those um, client families as we can. One thing that we 
never keep an eye off of though is or we always keep an eye on is are they still having family meetings are they thinking about uh, wealth transitions are they working effectively with their advisors on estate planning and the like because there's nothing more destructive to the wealth management piece than um, families that don't know what the money is supposed to do and what the structures are supposed to do. So that would be something that I think that we bring to the OCIO sleeve that would be a lot more sort of human and family oriented than an OCIO that would just be, you know, pure investment manager. Right. And do you have purview over kind of everything that a family might have, even though it may not be sitting with you uh, and then they might seek some advice on it or is it, they strictly give you a sleeve to to manage. Well, specifically for investments, that's a very important part of what we do is aggregate all of their financial data and make sure that what we're doing is a is an appropriate component of that overall picture. Your question, James, I think also relates to sort of the whole world of services that the family previously had. So outside of investments, yes, we try and really and get our nose in there and really understand the, the, the facts of the family and, and what's going on in their lives and what risks they have. Um, because we, again, they, you can't really do a good job of managing for money for multiple generations if you don't know the non-financial details of the family as well. Yeah, there's an old wholesaler uh, for the investment advisors. And he said, facts are the feelings like seven is the 17. So they sound the same, but they're not anywhere near the same. <laughs> um, and maybe seven is like an apple or seven is to an apple. It's just so, so different. Uh, and Corey, Corey, are you seeing any of this play out in, in your markets? I mean, are there, uh, is it, or is everything kind of just coming, uh, going along as kind of, as it was earlier with people that are retiring from the, say the veterinary practice and they're like, listen, I was going to sell it anyways. The price should be similar. And uh, let's do this deal because the real estate uh, or the real estate price is fluctuating such that and the, and the business valuation price is fluctuating such that uh, people are looking at maybe, maybe this isn't going to work or they're having to accept a, a different, uh, different terms to the deals. I think that uh, is certainly uh, an, an element that a lot of uh, business owners are beginning to consider. Um, I think the you know, hits to valuation, either on the real estate side or the operating business side, um, haven't trickled through yet, um, but I believe um, in a in a few months, if if the you know COVID crisis continues and business con- disruptions continue, I think um, a lot of the older uh, the older owners will begin uh, reconsidering uh, the the prospect of potentially selling their business, and uh, we think that that'll increase the the deal pipeline for our partners on the the business acquisition side. Uh, which will in turn uh, increase the the deal flow opportunities for us. Well, that sounds like good news. And how do you do diligence if you can't go there? Sure, sure. So we uh, it, certainly under normal circumstances we'd be traveling to every single asset. Um, but given uh, what's going on now, that's not the case for things that we're looking at right now. Uh, but what we do have the ability to do is uh, is is a detailed market analysis um, based on satellite tools that we have in house. Uh, secondly, for each for each deal that we do, we use uh, uh, many different third party consultants. So currently, we're still able to do detailed due diligence and move towards uh, closings that, that we currently have in the hopper. Great. And then for the foreign exchange, because you're U.S. market and some Canadian market, imagine you have a mix of investors. Do you do any hedging yourself, or do you leave that to say shops like Vesta at the at the client level? 
So we're set up currently uh, in terms of our sources of, of equity capital. We have uh, a U.S. call it main fund that has uh, aggregated capital from uh, from U.S. investors. Um, and then secondly, we have a uh, Canadian feeder fund limited partnership that goes into the U.S. main fund. And that's meant for the Canadian investors that don't want to do tax filings in the U.S. They don't want to be subject to right. um, various estate tax or, or, or other withholdings. And so we have, you know, folks on both sides of the border investing in our vehicle. In terms of managing the currency, uh, we're, you know, we're taking in U.S. dollars and we're investing U.S. dollars. And to directly answer your question, we are relying on folks like like Adam and, and MFOs and SFOs to manage uh, the currency risk on their end. I, I had a question for, uh, for Adam. You know, I think, um, you know, as you guys talk to clients and have, you know, a lot of dialogue around this market and what to do, I'm sure, you know, probably almost all of your clients are, are in a great position from an asset allocation standpoint. But you know, one of the hardest things in invest, uh, one of the hardest parts in investing is doing nothing sometimes. And that's especially true in this market where there's so much volatility and there's almost this sense that you have to do something. How do you kind of navigate that and, and communicate that notion to your clients? That's a great question because everyone has been taught to buy the lows in the public markets. It seems like it's a gut reaction, an immediate reaction. And there's no guarantee that we are at current lows, that the volatility won't continue, and that flat out the economy will look differently than it ever has in the past. And so there is a lot of value in waiting and having cash and being able to be opportunistic. It's a incredible point. So how do we communicate that? For one, we talk about Berkshire and, and Buffett and Munger and, and how much dry capital they keep for opportunity. Uh, but there's only so much you can do in terms of explaining parallels in such a unique framework that we're in today. So we we just try to say that this may not be the low to buy. That's yeah, awesome. I don't. I it's an interesting point though. It's uh, it's it, I it's a very, gosh, how do you really put into words the? I had one client family call it the world is vibrating, and this was back I don't know October November. And we were trying to convince him to start allocating more capital, and he loved his cash. And um, you know, the the wealth create, or sorry, generation second generation um, retired um, uh, steward was explaining like, I just I look at the world and I see it vibrating, and I just I'm so comfortable waiting. And so it it, it was interesting having him kind of instruct us that way. <laughs> awesome, thanks. And I guess. Adam, if you had someone walk in now and they said, well, you know, we just sold this business. We sold it and, uh, you know, and Corey took on the land. That's great. Uh, but we've got like X millions of dollars here to to put into the market. Where would you see opportunities? Is it in areas like real estate, private equity, uh, and maybe private lending that are a bit more stale dated, not really marked, or public markets or a mix Uh and then is there any, any geographies that are more interesting to you right now? Well, it's a great question. And, and that's what's happening is people are walking in and saying, okay, how does Vesta Wealth do things? So to start with, we would highly recommend that their public markets exposure uh, be um, hedged. 
we've done really well with our clients over the prior two years on on paying for insurance, so to speak, and that insurance paying off and rehedging out for another two years. And we would definitely take that approach with new capital. Uh, there still certainly is tons of downside risk in these prices. It's worth the insurance, in our opinion, and the cost of the insurance. You know, uh, buying buying those um, options positions, we feel we can make up in the alternative space. Certainly, uh, in terms of getting back to sort of their risk adjuster return, the expectations, whatever they may be, and so yes, we have a heavy tilt still with new money coming in towards infrastructure, real estate, um, renewables, uh, private equity, private credit. That still makes up uh, probably around 70 to 80 percent of our allocations for for new money coming in, because we just see the um, illiquidity premium as something that these families can handle. They're very fortunate that they can capture that illiquidity premium, and they just do not need the volatility associated with the public markets. And Adam, if I can, if I can just jump in, question for both you and James. Uh, given what's happened in the the public markets, you know the large declines. Do you believe that what's going on is going to precipitate an even larger flow into the alt asset sector? It's tough to say. One of the concerns right now is the pricing differences between ETFs and their underlying assets. And so, if you start to lose comfort in the ETFs being what the underlying assets are in terms of price, then I could definitely see more flood from the institutions back into what the underlying assets are themselves. But it, liquidity is still so valuable. I, for families to disregard the importance of liquidity in their overall financial planning and overweight to illiquidity in privates would be a, a bad reaction to the current state of affairs. You know, we talk about our asset manager selection a lot. We do a ton of grabbing beta as cheap as possible in that 20% allocation. So of, of all the things, you know, the, the asset manager selection is a due diligence process and a re-underwriting if you're in them for a long time. But the day-to-day -day is really about managing our ETF portfolio and, and our hedges. And so, um, you know, we do, we do a fair amount of keeping an eye on how ETFs are priced and how things are going in that market. And it's, it's trouble right now. There's um, some very big bond ETFs that are getting um, mispriced compared to their underlying bonds, which is a, a really bad sign in terms of the most liquid market, the most efficient sort of market product we've ever seen being mispriced. That's a bad sign. And Adam, just to piggyback on your comment on, on ETFs, um, specifically within the U.S. ETF market, there's been some huge dislocations come up in the last month. Um, actually, three e leveraged ETFs in the last three weeks have had to liquidate and wind down. Um, that has yeah. resulted in them indiscriminately selling billions and billions of dollars of underlying stock for basically no reason. I mean, there's no fundamental reason aside from the fact that the vehicle was created in such a risky way that those big drawdowns in the vehicle resulted in people just wanting out and wanting out immediately. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And these are the most liquid vehicles we've got, but when they get, when they get mispriced, it can, it can be a big problem. BlackRock just got tabbed to um, spend fed money on trying to um, keep some of these uh, bond vehicles properly priced. And it's quite a privilege they put themselves in because they basically get to, choose to buy their own ETFs, but um, it's, uh, 
it's a, it's a nice problem to have if you're them, but it's a big problem to have if you're the financial markets and you've looked at the last, you know, 15 years of ETFs as being a, you know, godsend uh, to building effective portfolios um, driven by low, low cost beta. Um, and man, it's, it's going to be an interesting world we're entering here. Uh, certainly the return of the active investor is going to be a big part of the next decade, no doubt. Um, when you look at sort of what the past decade did and what the coming decade did. And James, you were talking earlier about uh, 12 to 18 month issues around uh, the economy. And one thing that we're quite nervous about is um, inflation and just the hyperactivity coming out of all of this cash uh, that's being deployed into the market when we exit this uh, difficult time period is going to be just something I've never seen before like a, you know, a real red hot, quick inflationary market. It would be interesting to see what that looks like if it comes to bear. But with all this new cash on the table, it's easy yeah, to Yeah, because we had that in the crisis, the financial crisis, and there was a ton of money being thrown at it. Probably not, I don't know if there's $2 trillion, but something like that. And, um, you know, everybody who's, the, all the gold bugs are like, oh yeah, inflation's going to go up. This is great for us. And, and then uh, it really didn't. And I'm just thinking back to my econ yeah. class where, my prof actually had his license plate say this MVPQ, and it's not even an equal sign. You know, it's a three bar, so it's identity. So, if your vol- velocity of money is dropping precipitously, M can grow like crazy and take up the slack in the GDP. Like, so we would need six trillion bucks in the states to take up the projected thirty percent drop in GDP, um, and then P and Q are doing whatever they're doing. Wow. Um, so you can really throw a lot at it, and then as they did actually coming out of the crisis. And then, of course, in the Depression, they did the opposite because they, they, they kind of looked at it differently. But at, at the end of the crisis, they started to pull back, you know, quantitative easing, all that kind of stuff and tightening and that. And then they, they, they said, okay, let's pull it out. And they kind of did a pretty good job of it, I guess, because we didn't see inflation jump. Uh, interest rates were still low. Uh, asset prices rose. And it was kind of like, I think it was back in the 60s, they talked about fine-tuning the economy, the Milton Friedman days. And it didn't exactly work because OPEC kind of kind of threw, threw a grenade in the room. But um, they, um, you know, it, it seems like they've learned from the Depression, from Spanish flu, from 9-11, from all these things in the crisis, and then the credit crisis that, you know, you kind of got to, you got to do a few things. And sometimes too much is just enough. But you got to be able to take your foot off the gas mm-hmm. because yeah, you're right. If you have this for too long, the only good thing is here. If everybody does it and blows equivalent of six trillion dollars or whatever it takes to fill the hole, and issues tons of money, FX rates should stay exactly the same theoretically because you're you're no, there's no neighbor to beggar because everybody's done the same thing. Um, so it's uh, interesting to see where this comes out. This is like a, this is a real grand experiment here. And, and speaking of that, there was an interesting quote today. Stephen Polos talking about the rate cut and QE. He said, quote, a firefighter has never been criticized for using too much water. We'll see where that ends. Yeah, my favorite hashtag is, you know, alter not alternative. Because uh, why you have to have beta. Otherwise, if you have all this diff- all these different types of alternative beta or, or alpha, whatever you want to call it. Um, you actually have less diversification than if you add some beta, because even though it all kind of moves together, if you had 15 or 20% in the public markets and the beta stuff, then, um, 
you know, it should actually help diversification. But uh, yeah, stuff that's stale dated, like I say, like uh, like the privates, like that's that's great as a buffer. I mean, obviously the real prices, if you were to sell it, is going to be vastly different, even in the good market, um, just because of costs of doing it. And then uh, sentiment affects private markets, except you don't really see it. I think you just don't see sentiment show up in the prices because no one asks. Uh, you don't try to sell your house just because your property market around you went down 20%. You're like, whatever, I don't care. It's worth a million or it's worth you know 800 grand. It doesn't matter whatever the number is. Um, but what it does over time is it should actually, they found that let's say real estate and REITs, private real estate and REITs, they both make about the same amount of money over the long term. REITs have two to three times the volatility. They also have an exit point any day of the week. So if you do sell, it's at what price? And then you're out. Whereas with the private real estate, you're in there. Like Corey's not going to let you sell uh, out of his fund. He's just going to keep keep going and do its work. And at the end of the harvesting period, you'll get your money back. And maybe that is the best thing for investors is to have that kind of a a chain, knowing that they have enough in liquid money to keep their lifestyle or, or and an unexpected needs going. So, uh, I have a pretty biased interest, but then I run an, an alternatives association. So, <laughs> <laughs> even with the bias, you were pretty measured there. I liked it, James. And well, you got to throw something in there, yeah. <laughs> and of course, we're biased too. Yeah, no, like so. We we really think that our differentiator is our our ability to select private asset managers, that's a, that's the value add. And I think that wealth managers across Canada have to start looking towards this direction of, of the private universe and, and capturing the illiquidity premium. I think it's interesting that you pointed out that REITs and, and uh, private real estate tend to do about the same. There is part of the premium that you're achieving would have to deal with volatility, in my opinion. There is There is a value to that. And so, it, you know, it's interesting to to think about, well, how much would I want REIT versus private real estate in regards to just how much am I comfortable with the volatility? Yeah. And liquidity and the only liquidity that you need to have to, again, pay for the, the next meal or the next yacht, depending on, on how it works. There was a study out yeah. earlier where they said that if, you, if some in the public markets and mutual funds, if someone had an advisor, they would make more money as an investor than if they didn't. And I think part of that is your advisor is not picking up the phone, so they can't do the trade. But also, they would probably say, "Oh, come on, it's not that bad. Let's let's see what happens next month. I mean, there'll be another statement, and things will have moved." And or I've seen this before, because if people started investing in 2010, they really haven't seen a crisis. They've seen what they thought were crises, but it really wasn't. Now they're like, "Oh my God, this is like this is a few rolled up in one now, isn't it?" So um, when you have a bit of a a bit of uh, perspective, uh, which I hope, which we're getting here out of the two of you, two different perspectives on on the same type of market and what's what's happening. You can have um, you can have vastly different outcome from just knee jerk get out. And Corey, so what are you telling your investors? Is it, of course, they probably can't get out, uh, but um, is it that uh, things will turn around in the next? six to 12 months or something like that. And you'll continue to doing deals at, at good prices and, and keep going from there. Or is it something a bit more, uh, more market oriented? Is there, is there something that, uh, that I'm, I haven't read in the paper about the, the veterinarian market that that's coming around? Yeah, for sure. And, and I guess, uh, to highlight both, um, our, our development business and our U S platform, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky to have stable long-term 
um, equity partners and lenders, but at the same time, no one can ignore what's going on in the market at the moment. And so we have certainly seen an uptick in in our uh, in the in the in the dialogue and the frequent communication. You know, we've we've been certainly doing more scenario analysis and cash flow modeling to illustrate to our partners that you know we're in good shape, that we are in a defensive stance, and that when you know if and when this market turns around, we can continue to take advantage of opportunities that are, that are out there for us. Um, and we have the benefit of having you know effectively locked up long-term capital, um, where both ourselves and our partners all see that vision. Um, you know, not uh, not a six month or a 12 month vision, but we're looking out to create value um, on a you know, five to seven year mm-hmm. term. And Adam, what's your advice to your, to your investors, both the single family office that you're ingrained in with, uh, with what you're doing, you're embedded there. And also with the, your OCIO, OCIO clients. We really try and keep people focused on the long term. It's might sound trite, but, the more you can talk about the long term and the less you talk about the volatility, the better off the family is. We think about our clients' um, capital as being multi-generational and, and serving hopefully 100-year families. So the more we can take that perspective, the more uh, you can react to a scenario like this with some level of grace and, and get the emotion out of the decision-making. Great. Thank you both. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Adam. Uh, Corey from Toronto, Adam calling in from, uh, from Calgary. Uh, it's been some great insights into the real estate and, and pri- other private markets and public markets. And uh, we'll look forward to having you on our another podcast soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us, James.